about our, our billing. I, um, I charge five dollars for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can, I can almost guarantee you that, that our session won't last the full, uh, the full five minutes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and go. <laughs> go. Well, tell what? me. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Kaslin. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. Here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry. Stop it! Stop it! Yes. S T O P. New word. I.T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. How do people change? That's the question. How do we end up not being gripped by what we're gripped by? How do we, in this situation, it was being gripped by a fear, an irrational fear. But how do we change inwardly, deeply, from being gripped by maybe not a fear, but a great guilt? or an affection for what we know is killing us, or for something deeper that we don't even have words for, that we wouldn't even know what to say going into some sort of counselor, therapist, or pastor, or elder's office. How do you change? Every one of you in this room either has some theory of how it happens, or you have given up trying a long time ago. What's the point? but there is still something that gnaws you in the back of your head, even if you've given up, saying, is it really, is there no possibility for it? When I say the word change, you know what I'm talking about, but to borrow a biblical word for it, I'm asking, I'm actually talking about the word repentance. What does it mean to simply turn about 
and as one person put it, to agree with God about what is true and what is true of him. How do we repent? 500 years ago, there was a church tradition that felt like you could cover for what you felt like you needed to be forgiven for. You could cover your guilt by providing a monetary gift to the church. It was called the indulgences. It was a practice. It's no longer the case. But it was then, and along comes Martin Luther, and the very first issue that he raises with all the distortions of theology in that day was for him to say this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entirety of life of believers to be one of penitence, meaning true change, real repentance is not a financial matter. It's a matter of the heart, and you don't do it just once. It's a daily endeavor. So what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to turn around and to no longer be drawn to that thing that you know is leading you in a direction that is, it's an abyss? We've been listening to Elijah for several weeks now because we think he helps us understand Jesus a little more. But when we take Elijah on his own terms, we also realize that the only reason we listen to Elijah, the only reason that Elijah ever came on the scene was not to show himself impressive, but to call Israel to repentance. And so we're going to kind of back up a little bit into where Andrew preached last week in that famous passage about Elijah and the prophets of Baal before two altars. And we're going to get a running start to ask the question, repentance, how does it happen? And we're going to consider it under three heads. What is the nature of repentance? There's kind of two aspects to it we come from this. And then secondly, what are the outcomes of repentance? What's, what's the good of it? And then thirdly, we should probably ask this, where does it begin? What's the root of it? That's where we're going. The nature of it, the outcomes of it, the root of it. You'll remember some of it from last week, but we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll start in verse 36. I wonder if you might stand just to focus your attention and get your blood moving again. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 18. Starting in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, 
There's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. There's the curious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Now where are we going? All right. Last week, where Andrew preached in the showdown between the prophets of Baal, Baal was a Canaanite god, equivalent to what you might think of as Zeus within a Roman heritage, and uh, Elijah has called them all together, um, and it was supposed to be a, a demonstration of who had power, and he calls the prophets of Baal together and says, you, you know what, you pick your sacrificial animal, you build the altar how you want, and then you call upon your God and let's see what happens. And so they do. They build their altar, they pick their animal, and then they call upon Baal to come, and they try, and they try, and they try, and nothing happens. No fire is ever lit, even to the point where they start bloodletting themselves to show themselves really affectionate for Baal that he might move. And he, and he never talks. And friends, if that, that, I know that sounds so bizarre and so old, but if that is not a modern version of what it means to have an idol, I don't know what one is. Where you will bleed yourself thinking something will fall and something will happen and never does. That's idolatry. That was then, this is now. Some things never change. Finally, Elijah says, I guess he might be in the bathroom. Literally, it's in there. It's in there. It must be in the pot. And then Elijah says, fine, look, we're done. You had your chance. I'm up. Build the altar, but do me a favor. Douse it with water. Like, douse it with water. Go. They do. And then he calls upon the Lord, and fire falls. Fire lights it up. Light it up. And there you have it. And what happens? In that moment, all those who are Israel who have witnessed what just happened, it says in verse 38, they fall on their faces and they say twice, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, <clears throat> why, why do they say that? Now, clearly they're awestruck at the moment of it, but why do they say that? Because if you remember from last week, Elijah has pretty much done a throwdown with everybody that's watching. He said in verse 21 this, look. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Let me pull it up on verse 21. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, stop trying to please both deities and in the, in the course of events, end up pleasing neither of them. Decide. Stop being so wishy-washy. Pick. Go all in. 
Stop playing it safe. Choose. If, if Baal is your huckleberry, there you go. If the Lord is, then stop sitting there on the fence. You know what happens to your rump on the fence. And so the fire falls. And in that moment, what do they see? They see that the Lord, he is God, and they confess as much. And that, that my friends, I think is, when we're talking about the nature of repentance, that's the first part of the nature of repentance. True repentance will always have God at the center of the change. It will always be either an awakening for the very first time or a reawakening for whatever many times it's taken you that God is at the center of all things. That repentance is more than just changing because you're aware of maybe some harm that's being done as a consequence of your actions. That repentance is more than just realizing that there might be some danger involved in the continuing of the trajectory that you are on. Both of those work. Both of those are logical. Both of those are reasonable and appropriate. But repentance is something deeper. Repentance is something more than just discovering that there is an issue between your core affections and your attitudes and your behaviors, as much as that's also true of the moment. Repentance is first and foremost being awakened to the reality that God is at the center of all things and that until you reckon with him, you have not gone deep enough into the possibility for change. And that is why there are so many counterfeit versions of regret and remorse. And you've witnessed them all. You and I have, we're guilty of them all or we've participated in all of them. There, there is the version of regret that, you know, maybe doesn't say it, but pretty much implies it. I'm, I'm sorry I got caught. That's the extent of it. I would have kept doing it if I could, but it stinks that I got caught. And that's the one version of remorse, which is not really remorse. And then there's another version that says, if you've harmed someone, I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. Oh, <laughs> oh, don't, go, <laughs> don't put too much into this now. Um, I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. Not that I did anything wrong, but apparently you're probably like, the, the modern word for that is gaslighting, right? Yeah, you've heard that one. And then there's another version, which is still, it's better. It's, it's more candid. It's more honest. It's, it's the version of remorse that says, I've wronged you. I've hurt you. I was wrong. I have blown it. That's, that's closer to a real apology. But what I would argue for you is, is repentance is really telling someone, the reason I blew it with you is because I didn't trust the Lord. In fact, you might even say in the moment I hated him or thought he didn't exist. I, before I ever violated my trust, relationship, whatever it might be with you, it's because I first violated my trust, my, my trust in the faithfulness of God. When it goes there, there is a possibility of change that all those other versions, that third one, in as much as there's truth and integrity to it, notwithstanding, it's the fourth one that goes deepest. When, when David, when King David uses his authority to violate Bathsheba 
and then colludes with his commander to see to the murder of, of the wife of Uriah in order to conceal it. With the husband of <laughs> Uriah is the husband, sorry. To conceal the effort, to put him on the front line so that he will be silenced and dead. When David does all of that, commits all of those sins against all of those people, in that famous psalm that is attributed to him in Psalm 51, what does he say? Against you, you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. That before he violated any of those other people, he first said unto the Lord, You don't matter. Is he minimizing the harm that he's done to others? Is he pretending that what he's done to Joab and to, and to Uriah and to Bathsheba were inconsequential? Of course not. But there are some forms of surgery that, that attain and, and that aim for the, you know, the top of the wound, but if they leave the scourge down deeper in there, they're only going to have to come back later. And that's precisely what I think repentance is calling us to, is to an awakening of the reality of the Lord in all things. That's where it comes from. There's a, a second element to that nature of repentance, though, and it, and, and it comes from, let's just be honest, the hardest part of the passage. Israel has just fallen on their faces. They're confessing that the Lord, he is God, and then Elijah calls for all of the prophets of Baal to be executed in their sight. And look, <laughs> to put it euphemistically, that's an unfamiliar phrase. It's not just unfamiliar, though. It's, to our ears, it's brutal, maybe excessive from our point of view. Elijah is not establishing a paradigm. He's responding to a moment. And I think he's applying a principle, a kernel of a principle that has a timeless relevance to it. And it's this. When it comes to that which we must repent of, that which is seducing us, misleading us, corrupting us, leading us to offend the one who loves us, there is no such thing as a casual, gradual, I'll get around to it approach. There is no I'll quit tomorrow mentality when it comes to repentance. What that moment illustrates in, in the most heinous, difficult to swallow phrase is an evidence though to us about how we should think of what we have to repent of. That yes, Repentance begins with an acknowledgement that God is the center of all things and with him we must reckon and all those things we must repent of. But when it comes to repentance, there is only one way and that is a deliberate, decisive, and sometimes drastic effort. There's no pussyfooting around it. Paul, on two separate occasions, in two separate letters, when he speaks of the deeds of the body, when he speaks of sin, he doesn't say, contemplate them. He doesn't say, think about what your mother did to you or your father did to you and get back to me. In as much as that could be helpful. He says the ultimate effort we put into coming to the deeds of the body is to do what? To put them to death. He uses the language of put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. That's, that sounds really harsh, but, 
how else do you think of what is necrotic in you, what is deep in you, what holds you hostage to so many things? Look, I get it. Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, when he talks about that which holds us hostage, that which we know we've committed ourselves to, that which our heart lays title to and doesn't easily let go of, he says in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out, throw it away. That does not sound like, well, honey, Deliberate, decisive, seemingly drastic. Clearly he's speaking metaphorically. Don't really pull your eye out. It's a matter of the heart. And there's no way of getting around it. There's one of those vignettes in The Great Divorce, which if you know that story, it's about a a bunch of people who take a bus ride from hell to the outskirts of heaven, right? And there's, there's one of these uh, ghosts from hell that's on the outskirts and he walks up <clears throat> to the edge and he's got a lizard on his shoulder. And here's a wonderful little rendition of it. And he walks up to one of the spirits from heaven and uh, the lizard is sort of whispering in his ear and uh, kind of telling him what he should do. And it's, it's the lizard that kind of represents that influence in this ghost's life that would never admit him into the presence of heaven. And up walks this spirit from heaven that sees what he's doing there and sees this lizard who's kind of whispering in his ear, kind of like a demonic presence. And, and the spirit says, um, may I kill it? And the ghost says, well, let's not <laughs> relax, man. You know, that's a little over the top. The spirit says, may I kill it? And, and the ghost, again, begins to make excuses and maybe how this one has been, you know, maybe a problem and maybe a challenge, but that, that feels a little harsh. Maybe it's really necessary until the spirit keeps leaning on, may I kill it? And finally, the, the, the ghost finally says, oh, 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 okay, uh, maybe that will be helpful, I don't know. And then the spirit proceeds to do what it does. And as the ghost begins to feel the, the effort of the spirit to kill this lizard on its shoulder, he begins to feel great pain until he starts crying out in terror to the spirit saying, are you going to kill me? You didn't tell me you were going to kill me. You didn't tell me it was going to be painful. And the spirit says to him, I didn't say it wouldn't be painful. I just said it wouldn't kill you. He's talking about the nature of repentance in all of us. There's no such thing as repentance that doesn't hurt. Otherwise, we wouldn't avoid it so well. But there is a sense in which the Lord must act and we must be aware of what this thing is and who he is to us and how he must act on our behalf, but how must we be willing to allow him to do his work? That's the nature of repentance. And what happens in that scene, you should go back and read it this afternoon, is that the spirit kills that lizard and the lizard is transformed into a stallion upon which then that ghost now hops on the stallion and rides into heaven. Oh boy, there's all sorts of metaphors for that one we don't have time to consider. But that helps us transition to the next thing I think Elijah teaches us about repentance. Yes, there's a nature to it that reckons with God and requires drastic action. But there's an outcome for it. There's another side of it that we have to consider. And there's this really um, interesting little exchange 
So Israel has confessed what they confessed. He is Lord, the Lord, he is God. Okay, so what about Israel's king, Ahab? We've heard nothing from him yet. Not a single comment. What's his take on what just happened? And so there's this cute little exchange between Ahab and Elijah. Ahab says to Elijah, hey man, um, live it up. Eat, drink, storm's on the way. What? Yeah, go. Go on. Go eat. Storm's coming. He doesn't scorn Ahab. He knows exactly what Ahab has done. He doesn't condemn Ahab. He doesn't repudiate Ahab. He says, go eat. Storm's coming. And you know what Ahab does? I'm in. He goes. He eats. What does Elijah do? He goes up to Mount Carmel and he starts praying. He starts praying that it would rain. It's been three and a half years. No rain. Our friends in California, they know what it's like to have a society, an economy, everything crippled by the absence of rain for any length of time. You can imagine that when the next downpour comes in regions of California that know only drought, they will dance. Ahab goes up, he prays, he, says, he sends his little servant out. Hey, what do you see? Say, dispatched servant goes up. <clears throat> Nothing, man. Nothing. Okay. Keeps praying. Go back. Come back. Nothing. Go back. Nothing. Go back. Nothing. Seven times until finally, I think I see cloud and it rains and it rains why and God had made a promise earlier in 18 go see Ahab and I will make it rain but the other reason is because Israel has confessed that they get that the Lord he is God and confession is the first step toward repentance And what is to be associated with that recognition is restoration. There is renewal on the other side of repentance. You and I, we feel an apprehension about doing the hard thing when it comes to repenting. And that's what keeps us in our current rut. I know that. And it's because we forget that there's something on the other side of it that we have lost sight of. And that is certain outcomes. Israel's physical life is renewed and restored on the other side of attending to its own spiritual life. That's what I think it's meant to teach us. But, but that's the principle. How, how, do we, how does that really relate in, in real-world terms? Let me just give you a few examples. What, is, what are the outcomes on the other side of repentance? For one, you will no longer be concealing or hiding And you know what concealing and hiding, what kind of work it is when it comes to sin? It's exhausting. It's duplicitous. It's painful. I I worked for a man for a long time. He was my senior pastor in a previous church. And he became addicted to many things and eventually had to resign his post. And when he came before that congregation to confess to them and to acknowledge his pain, He said, I've never been freer than when I got found out. Psalm 32 puts it really vividly about one great outcome of repentance, about how you're no longer hidden anymore when it says this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever kept something in for a long time? 
Tell me that isn't your experience. That's one great outcome of repentance is to let go of the hiding. Another one, so much of what you and I repent of has to do within relationship, in the context of relationship. And you know what becomes, starts to exist between two people or between you and many other people in which you know there is something that needs to be said but that isn't being said. There's something that has to be acknowledged but isn't being acknowledged. There is a stench. There is a stench between you. <laughs> Not to trivialize it, it is like walking into a bedroom with teenage boys. There is an odor. There is a, a settled stench in the room that you immediately say, please somebody lift up a window. Let this out. I don't speak from experience. <clears throat> when it comes to repentance between two people, when somebody finally lets their guard down and stops pretending and finally says something that says, I've blown it. It's like somebody lifted a window and the stench that existed between you, that which you were suffocating by because you were stymied by your own estrangement, something changes. Not everything changes quickly. Trust is not rebuilt in an instant. Reconciliation doesn't happen right then, but it's a beginning. And if you want to think of another way in which there's a good thing, when it comes to repentance, oftentimes it means you are no longer having to chase what you cannot catch. You're no longer desperate to feed yourself on what will not fill. If you will repent of your incessant desire to acquire riches, you will, you will discover what it means to step off a treadmill for which there is no destination. If you will repent of the incessant desire for people to approve of you and affirm you, Probably many of you saw those, those awful visions of the houses out in the Outer Banks that, that washed away. Tide comes in. You know, you'd think when you built those houses, you, built, you, you thought you built your piers deep enough into the, into the subsoil in order to prevent something like this. And then even that will take you away. And it's because you have to go deeper still. Because storms come. And friends, take it from ex one with much experience in this. If you make their approval, their affirmation, your most important thing. It is only a matter of time before you will be washed out because that approval can never go deep enough. And so to repent of it is to say, I'm going to find that place, that foundation that is the deepest, that the only thing that can hold me when any storm comes. Alan Jacobs wrote a little essay over the weekend reading David Copperfield. And he discovered something about affirmation that kind of is something that's really relevant for our day. He, he said this, what most people want or think they want is affirmation. Indeed, many people demand it and they seek to punish those who don't give it to them. But affirmation never comes without conditions, even if they're unstated. What people need, whether they know it or not, is not affirmation, but rather unconditional love because only with unconditional love can there be genuine honesty. You and I want to get our strokes. You and I want to be approved for all sorts of good things, and that's fine. That's helpful, no doubt. But if that is our food, 
it's not enough. What we need to know is not whether a people will affirm us for what we've done right or ignore the things that we've done wrong, but who will love us even if we've blown it. So where do you find that kind of unconditional love? Oh, it's a great question. That's how we're going to land this plane. And it's the third thing Elijah tells us. What is the root of all repentance? I've already talked about how it's pretty bracing, which makes things, okay, uh, I don't know if I want to do that. And I've tried to tell you that there are certain outcomes that might make it beneficial, but you know your heart and I know my heart. You can tell me all the great things that might happen. I'm still going to value the opposite. So where, what would, what's the real hope of it ever being happening? The oddest part of the passage is what happens at the end. Um, Elijah says to Ahab, the storm's coming. Uh, you, ought to, you ought to get on that there uh, chariot and giddy up because you don't want to get caught in the rain. And so um, Ahab does. He gets on his chariot and, hi-oh, silver, let's hit it. And then almost um, like Forrest Gump, uh, the Lord moves in Elijah to run. Run, Elijah, run! Right? Braces come off. And Elijah runs, and he outruns. It's a photo finish at the, at the tape of Jezreel. And Elijah has won. Somehow he outruns the chariot. And Ahab's like, what happened? Oh, photo finish! There's Elijah at the marker! What? What is that all about? It's a symbol. It was not just a, look how fast I am. There's a parable that's being lived out in real time. What do I mean? Who is Ahab? He's the king, in name only sometimes, of Israel. He's the leader. Who's Elijah? He is the messenger of the Lord. The messenger of the Lord of Israel. And what has Ahab done so exquisitely for all of his reign? Disregarded the commands of God almost entirely. And here's Ahab running behind in the chariot, and Elijah beats him. What's that supposed to suggest? Of the word of God leading the leader of God in procession. That the wisdom and truth and purposes of the Lord would go before the one who claims to be the representative of God to his people. And that unless the word goes first, the world is run amok. That's weird, but let me tell you why it's nuts. Because what do we know about Ahab? If there's anything he has not done for the entirety of his reign is live for the world of God. He built temples to other gods. And he lets his Gentile wife, he authorizes her, or he just sort of sits back passively going, whatever you want, honey, just to murder the prophets of God. And yet, and yet there's an invitation by the Lord through Elijah to run behind me, to lead this people with God in the lead. Friends, when Elijah goes to the two altars, Baal, prophets of God, was it because the Lord looked down on Israel and said, you know what, they've made a pretty good faith effort to show themselves worthy? No. For Elijah to run ahead of Ahab, to give him an opportunity 
to lead again in the strength and the wisdom of the Lord? Had Ahab shown anything that demonstrated any, the slightest interest in doing what he wanted? Of course not. So what does that mean? You know where the root of repentance comes from? From that very lived parable. It's the unmerited grace of the Lord that is the beginning and the root of all repentance. That is the gospel in miniature there at that very odd photo finish race. God is the root of repentance. God's the one who starts it. And that's why Paul says, quite honestly, to his Israelite brothers, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Kids, I will bet at least once your mom and dad, mom or dad, has said this to you. Stop it! Right? Remember Scarlet Witch in the movie? I'm not a monster, I'm a mother. That's what she says twice. Stop it. And that appeals to a certain motivation in you. But you know what appeals to a different motivation in you? If you blow it, and it costs, and they pay for it, and they come back and say to you, I think you know what this has cost us, but I will never speak of it again. That appeals to something different in you. One motivation gets you to change in one way. Another motivation, it's different. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus' first words, repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. But he doesn't just call people to repentance like Elijah did. He dies in order to make grace be the foundation and the root of all repentance in us. That's the gospel. And that's why I call to myself and I call to you with this question of what, what's the lizard on your shoulder? What's the thing that's gnawing at you that you know is, doesn't fit, will not endure? What is it that you must repent of? I'm going to close and I'll pray, but not before I'm quiet with you all to invite you to consider it. Because friends, the beginning of all repentance is not just the will to repent. It begins with a confession. One thing you will never repent of is the sin you will never confess. And if you may confess that to the Lord or to one another, that's where it starts. Let's close. Let's be quiet. And then I'll pray. One thing I ask of myself, one thing I ask of you for myself and for all those who might hear me here or elsewhere, that you might help us to see you. The one who will at times speak deeply to our souls saying, stop it. 
but never without also implying, stop it, I love you. If you would help us to hear that and to have it explained by what we see at the cross, then that will be enough. And by your Spirit's help, the Spirit who came mightily at Pentecost and who still works in us today, would he be the one to help displace in us all those affections that are not worthy of you or us so that we may walk in what is life, free, new, and needful of having to do it again, but always with the hope that your love is steadfast. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.